So one of the things that uh, people um, shouldn't preach about, uh, according to uh, the conventional wisdom, is uh, politics. And uh, so since we're in the middle of a federal election, I'm going to talk about politics. <laughs> actually, actually, I'm going to talk about politicians. So you may have seen... <laughs> You may have seen on the news this week that Anthony Albanese, the leader of the opposition and aspirant to the position of Prime Minister of Australia, had a terrible week on the campaign trail. This is a photo taken from one of those moments as he was trying to figure out what the uh, interest rate was or the, um, or the, or the employment rate. I, I didn't see the live news, so I'm not sure which one he stuck his tongue out for. But he had no clue to the current value of these two most important economic indicators, the Reserve Bank cash rate, which sets interest rates, and the unemployment figure, which indicates the health of business in general. And this was especially embarrassing for his campaign because he was trying to claim that his party, Labor, was a safe pair of economic hands. Later in the week, he messed up again, getting confused about his own party's immigration policy and whether they would continue with offshore processing of immigrants who had arrived illegally. And again, this was damaging because Labor wants to be seen as strong on national security. So it wasn't a good week for Anthony Albanese. Of course, this brings Albanese down to Scott Morrison's level in the public eye, since Scoma hasn't made any campaign mistakes yet, but his I don't hold a hose comment during the fires last year, the, the accumulated frustration with lockdowns, vaccine rollouts, and his tardy response to the, to the floods, etc., have all dented his reputation badly. So this is sort of the, the, a common image of Scott Morrison, although this is one of the better, funnier ones. And yet, and yet, one of these two men will almost certainly be the Prime Minister of Australia in five weeks. I don't think it's going to be Bant or someone else, or um, what, uh, yeah, Clive Palmer or something. <laughs> Does that mean that we're forgiving as Australians? I don't think so. I think it just gives us an opportunity to whinge and complain about our leaders incessantly, right? Now, <clears throat> people have always been the same. They're still the same. We're fallible and frail, no matter what job we're doing. And it actually might be hard to credit, but I, I believe, and I have reason to believe, that our politicians are generally very intelligent, hardworking, responsible and moral people, despite what the media would like to say. They still make mistakes and they still occasionally fall into ethical potholes. But of course, that's why we have so many checks and balances in our system of government. Wouldn't it just be wonderful, though, if people could be perfect? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> of course, there's only been one perfect person in the history of the world. And the rest of us are so thoroughly imperfect that even the disciples who spent three years living with this perfect man, watching his life, listening to his teaching, still messed up big time. Even Jesus' perfect life wasn't transferable to his followers. Or was it? 
After his resurrection, Jesus spent, and this is Peter betraying Jesus, in case you're wondering what that picture is. After his resurrection, Jesus spent time meeting with his disciples. That's what we've just read. And there's more accounts in the Gospel of Luke. After a range of encounters, he finally confronts Peter, one of his three closest disciples. Peter had been especially confident in his own perfection, promising Jesus during their last supper that he would never abandon him. Yet only hours after that, Peter had denied that Jesus was his master, his teacher, three times. That makes Anthony Albanese and Scott Morrison look like legends. What a mess Peter was in. He'd been so promising a leader, and now he was a train wreck. Where would Jesus find a replacement? But Jesus didn't find a replacement, did he? In the brief span of three simple questions and three simple answers, Jesus approves of Peter as a leader in the church. Given how treacherous Peter has just been, how can Jesus do this? Isn't he setting himself up for a royal commission or something? Notice the questions Jesus asks. First, he asks Peter, do you love me more than these? Is Jesus asking if Peter loves him, Jesus, more than Peter loves the other disciples? Or is he asking Peter if Peter loves him, Jesus, more than the other disciples love Jesus? Either question's a bit weird, but remember that Peter had, just days before, said, even if all the others reject you, I never will. And then, of course, he'd gone on to reject Jesus. So it would make sense for Jesus to be asking Peter to compare himself to the other disciples again after his failure. But more important than this comparison is the core question, do you love me? And Jesus repeats this twice more. Peter's answer is plaintive. You can hear the pain in his voice. Yes, Master, you know I love you. And with that, Jesus commissions Peter to care for his followers, the church. Feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep. How could Jesus do that? How did he know Peter was up to it? Years later, the Apostle Paul explained to the church in Corinth the crucial difference between following Christ and every other belief system. He wrote, Unless Christ was raised to life, your faith is useless and you are still living in your sins. And those people who died after putting their faith in him are completely lost. If our hope in Christ is only good for this life, we are worse off than anyone else. But Christ has been raised from life to life, and he makes us certain that others also will be raised to life. Just as we will die because of Adam, we will be raised to life 
because of Christ. Adam brought death to all of us and Christ will bring life to all of us. That's Adam and Eve, Adam, by the way. In case you're wondering, in case you're wondering Luke, it wasn't your dad. <laughs> but we must wait our turn. Christ was the first to be raised to life and his people will be raised to life when he returns, which is why we look forward to his return. You see, Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee, our guarantee, that God can and has given us a new life. A new life that can be free from the mistakes and messes of the past. A new life that allows us to care for others in ways that we couldn't do before because we were so selfish. <clears throat> this might sound too good to be true, and the reality is more complex than many would like. Let me explain. When Jesus died on the cross, he died as the God-man, not just an ordinary human being. His death had so much weight that it could cover for many people's deaths. In fact, because Jesus is God and Jesus is infinite and God is infinite, his death could cover for an infinite number of deaths. So his death was quite extravagant because there's not an infinite number of people. Now, without Jesus' death, we all face death in response to our rebellion against God. That rebellion is a selfishness that doesn't just affect us or the people around us. It actually throws the whole of creation out of whack and ultimately destroys everything, which is why there's such a severe response. Our rebellion is so terrible that our death is the only appropriate response. If we went on living, we'd just make the world worse and worse and worse. But Jesus died in our place, not for himself, because he never rebelled. So he, his death was for us, to pay for our rebellion. But of course, that only solves one problem, our death, right? So Jesus has died so that we don't have to die. So now we don't have to die but we're still messed up. We still have the ongoing problem that our rebellion has caused, our messed up selfish lives. And of course, not to mention the messed up world, but that's the topic for another sermon. So don't worry, I won't, I won't be going on about that this morning. Jesus' resurrection shows the solution. His resurrection shows the solution for our messed up lives. Just as Jesus has new life from the tomb, we also can be given new lives. Like, but unlike Jesus, who was given a new body because he already had a perfect life, a perfect heart, our new lives come in two separate stages. This is the complicated part. The first stage, unlocked by putting our faith in Jesus involves us receiving a new heart from God. This is an internal newness. The core of our mind is transformed. We die to our selfish self. And we're set free from that selfishness. 
The next stage, stage two, is getting new bodies. Of course, like Jesus, we don't get new bodies until after our old ones die. In fact, we don't get new ones until Jesus has fixed the mess of the world and given us a good world to live in. So that's when Jesus comes again. In the meantime, until our bodies die, we have new hearts in old bodies. That means that we'll always experience a struggle between what our hearts love, Jesus, and what our bodies love, physical pleasures and selfish stuff like that. As we learn to love Jesus more and more and our hearts become stronger and our bodies have less influence over our choices and our lives, we become more like Jesus. And that's why Jesus asked Peter if he loved him. Because if our hearts are in control, if we love Jesus, then we can serve Jesus by loving him and the people around us. Unlike politicians, we can change and we can live better lives. Of course, politicians can do this as well. <clears throat> it's just they need, to, they need Jesus. So the promise of new hearts is as relevant today as it has ever been. You only have to turn on the TV news or read the newspapers to see how broken this world is. People slaughtered in their thousands in Ukraine. People attacked while travelling home on the subway in New York. These things don't happen by accident. They're not inevitable. They're the result of many people making evil choices. And this happens at every level, from, from broken relationships in the home right up to international war. All of us are touched by this. And the church, the church itself has struggled so much with weak hearts that it sounds almost silly to claim that we have the solution. But we do. We do. We just need to give the same answer to the same question as Peter. Do we love Jesus? Yes, we do, right? Do we love Jesus? I'm not going to do it a third time. That's, I don't like that. So. <laughs> but let's go out into the world and make that love visible in our lives, in our actions, in our relationships, with the help of the Holy Spirit. But that's yet another sermon so we'll do that one later if you want to love like jesus if you want to love jesus like peter did um, and if you want to have a new heart either come and have a chat to me or chat to anyone here and ask them how to love jesus and what a difference that that makes because it does make a difference